Yeah, the one thing we didn't do, which uh, I'm sure if I would have asked my dad, he would have uh, told me to do it uh, <laughs> with his experience in the north. After you land the airplane, we taxied in, you stopped the airplane. The weight of the airplane sitting there for 17 hours. We also then fueled the airplane in the same place. It all sort of settles a little bit into the snow. So now we have this very heavy twin otter sitting on snow for the last 17 hours. A little bit of friction too between the snow and the skis, you know, when we parked it. Generates a little heat. Yeah. yeah. And that airplane did not want to move even with full power. The engineer got out and was getting the South Pole people to, to rock the airplane, full power, full reverse, and rocking the wings. And eventually uh, the engineer showed the guys at the South Pole where to sort of grab the wings. And so there's quite a bit of rocking going on. And we had max power and the airplane just slowly, slowly, slowly started to move and just sort of hold your breath and hope it keeps going. <laughs> And uh, while you're doing this, of course, you're in your mind, you're trying to think of what other way can we get this all to work? Well, that was going to be my next question, is that at any moment do you're thinking, I'm stuck. We're stuck. We'd never be stuck. We'd always find a way. know how you would react if you were about to depart from the South Pole in the middle of winter, in the pitch black and deathly cold, and found your only means of getting home, a de Havilland twin otter, was frozen to the skiway? I certainly don't. But our guest on this episode does because he's been there and done that. Sean Lutet was the pioneer of the first and second rescue flights to the South Pole in the middle of the Antarctic winter. It was a feat that had never been accomplished previously. This and other stories of a life flying at high latitudes and low temperatures coming up next on the Work Now Work Show. My name is Terence C. Gannon, host of the Work Now Work Show, and I want to take a brief moment to announce that we're now a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. This is a great new initiative dedicated to the support and development of high-quality, independent podcasts produced in our home of beautiful Alberta, Canada. It's well worth your time checking out the members' podcasts, which can all be found in one place at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Just the way it sounds, no spaces. Stay tuned at the end of Sean's episode when I will also talk about the vital role ATB plays in powering the Alberta Podcast Network. Sean Ludit, welcome to the Work Not Work Show. It's truly an honor to have you as a guest on this episode. So thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. No problem at all. Sean, our listeners are anxious to hear about the full arc of your career, and we'll be talking about that in a few minutes. But before we do, take us back to that day in 2001 when you received the first call about a potential winter rescue flight to the South Pole. So it was actually as in April... It was right around Easter, and I remember we were on holidays out on the West Coast. And you get a lot of these calls, and especially back then I was at Kenbork Air, 
Uh, Ken Borick flies all over the world. So, you know, to get a call to go somewhere strange wasn't out of the ordinary. But a lot of those calls that would come in would never come to fruition. I mean, put a bid in or, you know, you talk about some stuff and it never happened. So the first call was, you know, we got somebody sick down in the Antarctic. Is there a possibility of going down and picking it up? And of course, Ken Borick Air, the answer is yes, there's a possibility. I think it was overnight of thinking about it. And the next day I get the next call, which was, yeah, they're serious and they would like us to put together a, a risk assessment and, and look at a detailed plan to go down to the South Pole this time of year. Well, when? Well, tomorrow. Like, as soon as we can go, we need to go. And I'm on holidays and it's okay. So, you know, I mean, a risk assessment we put together rather quickly. I think, you know, really the same day that evening or something, I came back to Calgary and, I mean, we very quickly identified a couple airplanes which we could use and and actually started the process of getting them ready. I think it was like Thursday from that first call. And by the time we actually started the airplane up to leave was like a a Monday. We put it together extremely fast. Of course, being in April, the aircraft normally come back from the Antarctic uh, late February. Before the summer season in the Arctic gets going, usually we have airplanes sitting around a bit. Uh, It was fairly easy to identify a couple airplanes to take south again. And we, we did want to do a few different things than we normally did for operating in the Antarctic due to the extreme temperatures at that time. And of course, you know, we had to pair it up with our risk assessment, which ultimately looks at worst case scenario. What happens if you have to land the airplane somewhere between uh, Rothera and the South Pole, which you're not planning on landing anywhere in there, and having to survive at those extreme temperatures for any length of time to wait for someone to come and get you from that location. In that risk assessment, uh, give the audience a sense as to kind of where it sat on the scale in terms of risky versus not risky. I don't know how you express those things. I think Ken Borker, I mean, had been operating down in the Antarctic for 17 years at that point, something like that. So the trip from Rothera to South Pole you know, was a normal occurrence. It wasn't like we've never done this before. We have done it before. You know, we threw in a few variables such as we actually will not land anywhere else. If the weather isn't right, we can't plan to stop somewhere for fuel. We don't have any support services anywhere in the middle there. We are going to be heavier because we want extra fuel for contingency so that we can go further if the weather changes before we'd have to turn around. We had to take into consideration that at the end of the day, we could have an ambulatory person on board. So we had to have room in the cabin to put a stretcher. We knew that a very good likelihood we'd want to overnight there. So we needed to make sure we had a plan for for operating at those extreme temperatures. The aircraft, which Ken Bork Air normally operates to, you know, 45, 50 below, but then take that the extra 20 degrees colder now we got to start thinking, well, grease is going to freeze, so we got to get rid of the grease. we got to get, you know, make sure fuel planning and uh, any sort of liquids, batteries, stuff like that that are on board the airplane, we got to make sure nothing's going to freeze. With the risk assessment, we really wanted to look at worst case scenario, and I think at the end would have been onboard fire, landing the aircraft as soon as you could in the pitch black 
in an unknown area, could be crevasses or mountain areas or a very poor place where you could do damage to the aircraft on land. That was sort of our worst case scenario. So we wanted to have survival gear on board that would allow us both to survive, but also try, you know, with flares and stuff like that, mark a location for another aircraft to come in and recover us. What you've just described sounds very clinical, doing things by the book. What's your personal reaction to this opportunity at this stage? What's your feeling about the prospect of doing this? I'm a pilot. I love flying. I've always enjoyed going to the Antarctic. Kenbork is a very under-the-radar company. When we got the call, there was never a thought that this was going to be publicized media or anything. It was go down for our customer, a very good customer, which was the U.S. government, to a remote location to pull a person out and to do that safely. I think in the back of my mind, here's a challenge to go and do this. I mean, there's so many teams involved from different countries to make this all happen. It wasn't just about a couple pilots. It wasn't about one company. It was about a company flying an aircraft, a company doing weather reports, a country doing weather reports, two Antarctic bases providing support services, 55 people at the South Pole all pulling together to prepare a acceptable skiway, to somehow light it in the middle of winter where electrical cords will snap in half at those temperatures so you, you can't put like regular lights out. And we're going to get to that in a second, but you didn't have a hint of dread. I mean, there was no sense of, oh my God, I can't possibly do this or I don't, for whatever reason, I don't want to do this. You were really engaged with the challenge from and, the very outset. And I think, you know, that was one really nice thing working at Ken Care is they're a do company. They're not a company that put up a lot of fences to say, well, you know, that's impossible or forget about this. They were a specialty aviation company that does work all over the world. The ability to operate in these extreme climates is why that company is still operating in the Antarctic and and the far Arctic. Greenland, they do, you know, operates in the extreme temperatures as well. The desert areas in the Maldives were extremely hot on floats, wheels, skis. So, I mean, I don't think there's ever a, a, we can't do this. It was just, you know, how do we do this safely? There was a prospective mission that was being staged by the U.S. Air Force using the much larger C-130 Hercules aircraft, which was eventually called off, and I believe that's when Ken Borick got the call. How is it that you felt you were able to make that flight to Amundsen-Scott South Pole, and the USAF somehow didn't? Well, we operated side-by-side with um, the U.S. Air Force, and prior to that, the U.S. Navy operating the LC-130 aircraft, which is the ski-equipped Herc aircraft. If you don't know what a Hercules is, it's a a large four-engine aircraft that has a very large cargo area that can sort of go all over the world and has been used by military and a few civilian companies everywhere around the world. In the Antarctic, they fit them with these very large skis, but it's still a very large aircraft, comparable size to a Boeing 737, 
a lot of systems, hydraulic flight controls, flaps, gear, skis. We make fun of the military because they go out and they fly these airplanes with 18 people on board because everybody has their little job. I mean, they can't start it out without three or four people in the cockpit, one or two people out on the ramp, a guy in the back door, a guy in the front door, a guy here, there, everywhere. So it just takes so many people for them to operate because that's the military procedures. I mean, nothing wrong with that. That's the way they train. That's the way they do it. When we got the call, I believe the call we got was just after the Air Force got theirs. But I know and of course, at Ken Care, we know what the military minimum temperatures to operate that airplane are at. And they normally go to minus 45. And with all their special commander approvals, they can go down to minus 50. And we knew then at the temperatures, it was a very low probability that it was going to warm up to that anytime soon, like months. Their plan was to airdrop people, to run extension cords, to put in lights. And in the back of my mind, you saw one Hercules broken down at the South Pole with an additional 18 people that the station would have had to feed for the rest of the summer until they got it out of there, which is not a viable option for the U.S. government because, of course, they they're very carefully plan these winter seasons, which is eight months, 55 people in this closed community. So to go there without a good chance of getting out was was not a good option for the U.S. government. I believe that they had a successful mission probability of something like 30% or less. We felt with the Twin Otters, our success was uh, over 99%. I mean, you know, we had just a few items that could have happened on the way. So with the dispatch reliability of the aircraft and the limitations on the aircraft, we felt virtually 100% that we could go down and do it, which is what we did at the end. I understand that Dr. Ron Shemansky, who had a pancreatitis, I believe, which is why he had to be evacuated, actually didn't want to leave the pole. Did, were you aware of that? And did it in any way change the nature of your considerations? We were paid to go down to take the replacement doctor down because of course it's great to say we're going down to rescue the doctor down there and bring him out for medical care the thing the u.s government was very concerned about was they had 55 people down there for what was it, another six or seven months they did not want to go without a doctor people have died at the south pole before they take them outside and they leave them outside till the first hurt comes in and then they ship them out and return them back to the states Wow. So people do die there. They have died. Of course, the first time Ken Bork Air went down there in the winter, now, hopefully, people won't die there anymore because now we've proven that we can pull people out. Before that first time, nobody had left. If you're one of 55 people who go down to the South Pole to stay there for that whole time period, you don't want to be the party pooper that leaves from the dance early. <laughs> There's a certain ethos associated with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And I think that was Ron. You know, he's like, I don't want anyone to risk their lives to come and save me. But we were taking his replacement down was the primary reason. And then bringing him back to make sure he didn't die. 
I think there's a lot of hype about it. At the end, there was no issues when we got there. Ron was very happy to see us. I mean, he's a pilot himself. He understood a lot of the issues. and He didn't have to put him in a headlock to get him on no, board. No, he did not. He, <laughs> he was perfectly fine. I mean, when you see him and stuff, when we were down there, everyone at the South Pole sort of looks like they're half dead right. because you're up at 10,000 feet above sea level. Right. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. And yeah, so, you know, everyone sort of walks a little slower and they're kind of like zombies with the bags under their eyes. So, you know, Ron being sick as it was, wasn't looking that good. But by the time we got him back to Chile, I mean, I think we went out for coffee the night we were there and it was good that they got him out. It was good that they got him treatment. And I think he stayed on with the program for a number of years after. And, you know, I mean, I I did, I have talked to him since we pulled him out and, you know, he's never really had any issues. But. So there's no pre-existing protocol or checklist that you can follow. So perhaps you can describe for me how you start on something like this. There's no protocol for going down in the middle of winter. However, Ken Borkair for 17 years has been going down to the Antarctic. They know what they have to take to go down there. They know how to prepare the airplane. They know what equipment should be installed on that airplane. It wasn't like we've never been there before. We've done that trip. We've done that trip from Rothera to South Pole before. It was not new for Ken Bork. You throw in the darkness and the cold temperatures. Well, Ken Bork here for 20 years has been operating out of Resolute Bay, which is dark for seven months a year. And as pilots, we fly at night, so the darkness was not a big deal. And really, it came down to just what precautions do we have to take for that extra cold temperature? So did you think of it as a baby step or a big step from what you had been doing up until that time? I think a baby step. So the risk was totally acceptable to you? Yes. The planes were actually dispatched out of Kenborg's Calgary base. So you had a pretty long commute before the real polar work actually began. So what's involved in getting the aircraft down there? About eight or nine hours of flying a day and uh, hotel, food, and just preparing for the next day flying. First day is Calgary down to Houston. Uh, Houston to Grand Caymans. Grand Caymans to... Uh, Sounds great so far. Yeah, to uh, <laughs> Ecuador, to uh, Waikil, Ecuador. Waikil down to Arica, Chile. Then we went Arica, Chile to... I believe it's Portamont for fuel down to Punta Arenas. We were in Punta Arenas for just a couple days, and that's our last jump-off point from... Well, that was going to be my next question, is that you cross from Punta Arenas, Chile, to Rothera, and at that point you wait for weather and for other conditions to align. What's your thought process at this point? I take it you're simply anxious to get on with it. Well, I mean, you really want the right weather. Going from Punta Arenas to Rothera... You're looking at the bigger weather picture. You have low pressure uh, systems that roll across the Antarctic coast and will impact Rothera. So the weather in Rothera can go right down to almost nothing. Rothera is actually on a deli island just off the peninsula. Uh, You have some high mountains and stuff around there. So you don't want to go down there and get caught. There's not really anywhere else to go. That time of year, you have darkness around there as well. Rothera has lights. It's a 3,000-foot gravel runway. It's fine to land there on wheels. We started watching the weather probably as soon as we got into Chile, 
to see what was happening so you could sort of see the systems. You know, every year you go down, you just time it so you go in between these systems. Once we got to Rothera, of course, that's when the wait really started because we were looking for whether to be good for departing out of Rothera, for returning back to Rothera, and for getting into South Pole. All those things combined. Plus, you're all, you know, you're watching the temperature at the South Pole. I do remember actually it was on the second trip where we're sitting in Rothera and the temperature hit minus 75. Ambient. Yeah. Like without the wind chill. Without the wind chill. Unbelievable. It can be even worse than what we had. At the end of the day, the cloud and visibility was the you know the driving factor. We knew we could get essentially halfway to pull, turn around, go back to Rothera. So we had good weather in Rothera for that time. We had a forecast good enough to continue on to South Pole. And we knew there's a system behind us that we'd have to stay at South Pole and then we'd be able to return. I mean, in the end, you're sort of juggling everything and watching what's happening. And I don't want to make it sound like I was the only one who was watching the weather. We had the U.S. guys in Charleston with Spavor, which is the contractor that provides weather services to the National Science Foundation. We also had the folks in New Zealand who do a lot of the weather for McMurdo. So they were also assisting with weather forecasting for South Pole. Plus we had the British guys out of Rothera assisting. And then of course, prior to leaving Chile, we had the Chilean uh, weather people. So, you know, you have a lot of people all watching the weather, all giving you, you know, what their best opinion on what's gonna happen when you get there, right? And that's, that's what we had to go by. There comes a moment, all of the stars aligned, and you eventually you know, fire up and go. What goes through your mind at that particular moment? I guess you think about everything that could happen. You think about all the prep that went into to getting the airplane into the air, and just you don't want to have an issue halfway because you forgot something or you missed something. All that comes in, and then just before you leave, really it's that whole weather picture that you have in your mind, and the weather was not perfect. I mean, it wasn't like we left and it was, you know, sunny and clear and rather sunny and clear at the pole. I mean, <laughs> it was not perfect, but it was acceptable for us to go. And you're going and you have a bit of a timeline that you don't want the guy to die, of course, before you get there. You don't want to fly halfway there and have the weather go for shits and then have to turn around. So, Start all over again. Yeah. Do you have butterflies? at that moment when you depart or are you just you way, so are, are you way past this in terms of experience I don't know I, I think you know you're still always a little apprehensive on what's going to happen I think on that whole trip it was just before we hit our our point of safe return back to Rothera where you know you're still looking at the weather and the weather is still not to that point where you can just go ah it's good we're going to make it there's no issues like leading right up to to that point is the weather good enough? What's happening? Is it changing? It was just above our limits for continuing. And, you know, I mean, you're waiting for the weather people to give you their best estimate. I mean, that's what it is. It's a forecast. They don't know what's going to happen. And of course, once you cross that line, you're committed. You hope they're right. You hope it doesn't go 
bad because you don't want to use all that pilot skill to get in when it's really ugly. The flight from Rothera to the South Pole is about 10 hours. Can you describe that experience in practical terms? What can you see? What do you think about? How do you pass the time? Is the air rough or smooth? Try and put the audience in the pilot seat for that flight. It was quite nice on departure. You know, you can see the mountains around. You climb up to your altitude. We're quite heavy. We're at pretty well the maximum ferry weight for the Twin Otter, which is quite heavy. So, you you know, it's a slow climb. We have an autopilot on the airplane, but you're trying to do your best to climb as fast as you can and maintain a good forward speed because you're, you're looking at how long is it going to take you to get there, how much fuel you have on the aircraft, how much reserve fuel are you going to have when you hit overhead pole. If the weather goes bad, then the best option is to fly around until the weather gets better. So you want all those extra reserves. And really, for the 10 hours, you're constantly checking the weather, checking your fuel. In the Twin Otter, because it does not have 10 hours of fuel on it, you're moving fuel around the airplane because we have ferry tanks inside the airplane. The engines burn fuel from tanks that are in the belly, so you're moving fuel from inside the airplane into the belly. Because you don't have gauges on these tanks, you know, you're constantly watching what your aircraft gauges show you because you don't want to screw up that fuel. You want enough to get there. In the end, I believe we had about 13, 13 and a half hours of fuel. So we were estimating overhead South Pole with about three, three and a half hours of reserve, which the more fuel you have, the better. With that fuel, we could have almost made it to McMurdo, depending on what we actually had. We probably would have been close, which you know is really the only other place we could have went or just orbited around South Pole until the weather picked up. So you're busy. You don't have a lot of time to stare out the window. Not that there's much to yeah. stare at, I presume. There's no lights. Yeah, and, a, and about halfway it was pitch black. So There is a moment on these polar flights, and you've, you've already alluded to them, the point of no return, when you have only one choice but to go forward. What is that ex- like exactly? You know you're not turning around. <laughs> it's as simple as that. As simple as that. Does your approach to the flight change at all at that stage? Yeah, well, you definitely forget about what's behind you. Okay. Yeah. Are there specific navigational challenges associated with flying near the poles? Of course, at the South Pole, everywhere is north. Well, we have GPS on board. Uh, aboard that flight, we also had an inertial navigation system, which works well up to about 70, 75 degrees south. So as you get closer to the pole, it's not that great. But it's a backup means in case you ever lost your GPS. When you're operating around either polar region, we run in grid navigation. So it's like putting a square grid on top of a map of the Antarctic. Mm -hmm. And using that, it allows you to navigate properly. Otherwise, like you say, when you're going to the pole, of course, everything is south. Right. Using the grid nav is much easier. And even at, you know, companies like Canadian North, when we operate in Canada's Arctic. I mean, we operate in in a form of grid navigation. So So there's really no possibility of getting lost. Well, there's always the possibility of getting lost. Right. Uh, GPS these days, generally not. But the tough thing is if the weather goes bad, you want to orientate yourself so you're lined up on the the skiway so you, you can get in and land if the weather is bad. So your final approach to Amundsen, Scott, use some pretty ancient technology to guide you into final approach and landing. There wasn't an option to put lights down on the skiway because of the temperature. The option that the people at the South Pole came up with 
was to take empty barrels, cut the top off, put wood and gasoline in them, light them on fire, and of course that would give us uh, a visual clue. Not that that's far out of base, because in Canada's Arctic, before we got these better runways, I mean, they would light flare pots and put them next to the runway, and that's what guys at night would come in and, and find the runway with. So this is something you're familiar with. Yeah. It's so, an approach that's pretty standard. Yeah. And, and really, it just allows you to see what the edges of the skiway are. And and the South Pole Skiway is quite wide. It's probably as wide as Calgary's airport. So you have a lot of room there. But of course, at minus 68 degrees Celsius, gasoline doesn't vaporize. So it's a little hard to get it lit on fire. And of course, the wood doesn't want to burn. So what they had to use was tagger torches to actually vaporize the gas and light it on fire to get the whole thing burning. And it was such an ordeal for the people at the South Pole to get that done. They actually kept it burning the entire time we were on the ground so they didn't have to relight it. Because they're trying to operate outside at, what is it, minus 75 at this stage? Well, minus 60, 70 degrees, yeah. Right, so anything that you do outside at that stage and at that altitude is just an incredible effort. Talk about your time on the ground at the pole. And... In particular, what was necessary to turn the plane around and get it ready to go home? Well, we had an engineer on board. We had the support of pretty well everyone at the South Pole. So we landed there, there to help us unload. Uh, was, had, there, was there an air of celebration at that stage? Or yeah. again, help people understand kind of what's that like? Because nobody's going to experience that. More well, likely. well, you always think like the people at the South Pole, you know, this wacky Canadian company is going to come down and take somebody out in the middle of winter. No one's ever done that before. Yeah, right. Maybe they'll make it. Maybe they won't. Right. So when we got there, it's like, yep, they're here. They're actually here. Wow. <laughs> but it took them the entire time, probably took them 10 days to get the ski way prepared and get everything ready. They were happy we were there. I'm sure they're happy when we were gone, probably more so. <laughs> But yeah, a lot of support from them. We had engine tents, we had heaters in the engines. They had Herman Nelsons there. We had them take a fuel tank into their garage area and keep heated fuel there. So before we left, we actually pumped heated fuel in the airplane instead of take fuel that was at minus 70 degrees. Any of this is being ad-libbed or you've planned this all out? We planned it. Yeah, you knew this is what we were gonna have to do. Jet fuel turns to jelly at those temperatures. Depending on which jet fuel you get, the stuff we had was fine. It has icing inhibitors mixed and blended in with the fuel. Right. And that's what they use all over the continent. So it definitely is thicker. In the Twin Otter, we have oil-to-fuel heat exchangers that actually heat the fuel up. At the end, what we were told by the engine manufacturer, Pratt Whitney Canada, was that as long as when the fuel hit the FCU, which is kind of like a a very expensive carburetor mm-hmm. that the fuel was at minus I think they said minus 59 or warmer they didn't see any issues and when you start the airplane and you throw the fuel on and you're just waiting for it to start you know them saying that sort of goes through your head going hmm, I wonder if they're right or not but it started up fine there's right. no issues and again it was warm fuel but you kind of wonder how warm it is by the time you pump it into the tanks and you actually start the airplane So aviation regulations still apply, even at the South Pole. You had to rest for 10 hours when you were down there. Our duty day would have been extended. Now, 
you know, we were sort of on the fringe areas of the rigs. So we did have full approval from the regulator. I'm pretty sure we could have gone to them and say, yeah, we're not going to rest. We're just going to turn around and go back. And they probably would have been okay with that considering all the circumstances. In the end, we stayed for about 17 hours at the South Pole because the weather in Rothera wasn't really good enough for us to just turn around and go back. When we finally got back to Rothera, I mean, the weather was just, I believe is just clearing up. So, I mean, it was not the greatest going in there, but. You had some challenges getting the plane ready to depart from the South Pole, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the one thing we didn't do, which uh, I'm sure if I would have asked my dad, he would have uh, told me to do it uh, (laughs) with his experience in the North. After you land the airplane, we taxied in, you stopped the airplane. The weight of the airplane sitting there for 17 hours We also then fueled the airplane in the same place. It all sort of settles a little bit into the snow. So now we have this very heavy twin otter sitting on snow for the last 17 hours. A little bit of friction too between the snow and the skis, you know, when we parked it. Generates a little heat. Yeah. Yeah. And that airplane did not want to move even with full power. So you tried. You tried to move it. Yeah. We tried to move it and it's kind of like... What are we going to do now? The engineer got out and was getting the South Pole people to to rock the airplane, full power, full reverse, and rocking the wings. And eventually, uh, the engineer showed the guys at the South Pole where to sort of grab the wings. And so there's quite a bit of rocking going on. And we had max power, and the airplane just slowly, slowly, slowly started to move. And just sort of hold your breath and hope it keeps going and uh, while you're doing this of course you're in your mind you're trying to think of what other way can we get this all to work well that was going to be my next question is that at any moment do you're thinking i'm stuck we're stuck we'd never be stuck we'd always find a way always find a way to get Uh, worst case scenario you unload everything light airplane start it up move it around you know you'd get going you're sitting there at 70 below and you don't really want to start all over again. So, I mean, there's options, you know, we could have tried to pull it with a cat or something because they did have one uh, cat that was operational. So there was never an oh shit moment, to put it bluntly. Well, for a few minutes, there's just a what are we going to do moment. But, uh, you know, there's always a solution. So uh, we did get out of there. The second time we did the flight, Before we fueled, we actually started the aircraft up and taxied it around just to make sure there's no issues. We also parked it on bamboo poles to ensure that wasn't sort of settling into the snow. And that time we had zero issues. So we we do learn. So you depart, you get away, you fly back to Rothera. Is there a particular moment that sticks out in your memory as we've done it? Well, I think... After we got out of the airplane in Rothera, I remember lining up on the runway going into Rothera and it was very windy. The ocean isn't frozen yet, so you actually have huge waves, white caps, and the runway is 3,000 feet and there's ocean on either end of the runway. So it, it felt like you're lined up on an aircraft carrier and you're just going, <laughs> that runway looks so short. <laughs> and, and so I don't think it was until you actually touched down, taxied off and got off the airplane that you said, yeah. We're good. So up until that moment, you still think that there's opportunity for things to go wrong? Yeah. I think you described once when when I asked you about this previously, you saw the sunrise and it was a pink line on the horizon and that really stuck in my mind. 
Well, it was amazing coming back from South Pole about halfway, you see the sun starting to rise and you never really saw the sun. You just saw the pink on the horizon. And it, I think it virtually stayed there for two, three hours, it rose and set again, but we never got far enough north to actually see the sun. Did that give you a sense of relief or that you, things were coming to an end or was that just another step along the way? I don't know. It, it was nice. Yeah, for sure. The second Twin Otter and crew, because there's two went down, they stay behind in Rothera to provide backup. Is that kind of like being Mike Collins in the Apollo Command Module orbiting the moon <laughs> while Armstrong and Aldrin are down on the surface sipping tank? Yeah, I don't think Collins could have went down to the pole or down to, to the moon to pick them up if they had a problem. Right. But did that crew say, well, we've come all this way. I would have loved to have done that. Sort of the way you think Mike Collins would have thought. Well, I, I definitely think that they thought that. And I mean, in all respect, the captain of that airplane, I felt was a much better pilot than I was. Oh. Because if anything happened, I wanted the best pilot there <laughs> to come and get me. Right. Whereas if we swapped positions, I don't know how... Well, it would have been if he had a problem and I had to go get him. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, they're obviously both key roles, but I was wondering if there was a certain, what the dynamic was between the two crews. In, uh, you know, I mean, we worked together the whole way down. I don't think anybody really envisioned all the PR stuff afterwards. You know, even the engineers, I mean, in the end, they drew straws to decide who was going to go and who was going to stay. I mean, both very qualified, very good engineers. And like I said, the, the other the crew for the other airplane were could have done the trip, in, you know, in their sleep as well. So, in September of two thousand and three, you were once again asked to make one of these rescue flights. This time to bring back a gentleman by the name of Barry McHugh. What were your feelings about being called upon again for what, for many, should have been a once in a lifetime bullet dodging experience? It was just before the start of our regular season. It was definitely a, a little different feel, but at the end, I mean, it, you know. You were anxious I, to do it, though. Yeah. Like, there was, mean, no, there was no question in your mind, oh, I've kind of done this once. No, I, I mean, I enjoy the Antarctic. I enjoy the flying, and those type of logistic trips are fun to plan and, and to execute. It, it was a good trip. The guy I went down with, I mean, I've flown a lot with him, Brian Crocker, who's now running uh, Ken Bork Air, and it was great doing the trip with him. Uh, in the end, that was when we were sitting in Rother and looking at the weather at South Pole at minus 75. And that was right when the sun just rises at the South Pole. It rises, stays up for the whole season, and then goes down in February. So that is generally the coldest time of the season. And we knew that. So we were kind of wondering what was going to happen. And like I said, we were sitting in Rother at minus 75. You're sort of going, wow, that's really cold. In the end, I believe when we got there, it was about minus 60, so it was warmer than the first time we went. And there was light. So, you know, it was a different type of uh, trip, but a lot of the same factors. I'm going to ask you a question, Sean, and you don't have to answer it. What's the role of fear in conducting these kinds of flights? Well, I, th I think it keeps you in check that, you know, you don't want to get to that point. I mean... Do you feel it? Is there any moment in the flight where you go, maybe I'm in over my head? That never occurs to you? Not in these flights. I think uh, you always have a plan. You always have your backup plan in your head. And I don't think we ever got to the point where you ran out of options. 
I imagine I would have been scared if I would have had a fire in the back of that airplane and they're fighting it with a fire extinguisher and we're heading towards the ground just trying to find a place to land. As pilots, I mean, unfortunately, compartmentalize everything and you just put that aside, you do your job and you fly the plane and you get it to the ground. If asked, would you go back again? Absolutely. Possibly November. Oh, is that right? Is that is that an opportunity that's presenting itself? Possibly. Wow. There was another flight just last year uh, that you didn't participate in. Do we run the risk of thinking of these flights as routine? Boric seems to knock them off without a lot of apparent difficulty. I mean, it belies the complexity that you've just described. It just seems like they make it look easy. And I still know a few people there. And I mean, the people that did the, the flight last year, I know. And I know... They're still planning the trips very carefully. They're not just going and ad-libbing it. They're using experienced guys who've been down there before, who know what they're doing. I don't think they take anything for granted. So in this industry, safety you know, has even become more so number one. And a company like Kenbork Air, who I think a lot of people used to think you know, are cowboys and just go and do whatever, is a very structured and it's a small airline that has airline procedures in the cockpit that does specialty work. But again, safety is always number one. So if there's a company out there that can do this type of work, it still can work here. Do these flights, do they represent a high point in your career? Absolutely. That's the pinnacle. You and I are in a similar demographic, so I'll I'll say that that we're both pretty young Um, (laughs) and uh, with lots of career ahead of you, us. Did you think about that at all and whether nothing else could quite be as challenging ever again? Kind of like the mountain climber who's climbing Mount Everest. What else is there to do? Climb the mountain out back. I, I like flying any airplane. I mean, I'll fly a little Cessna from Springbank. I had my own Cessna 185 that I love flying that presents its own challenges. Today, I'm fortunate enough to be able to fly a 737 and a Dash 8 aircraft in, in the Arctic. Gravel, it's exciting. I mean, that's my passion is flying airplanes. I, I love the trips I did with Bork, and that will be a highlight, but... Every time I get to step into a cockpit, I, I'm enjoying what I do. You, none of your appreciation for flight was diminished by the fact that you'd probably done one of the most difficult flights there is. No. Is there a, a big difference between flying in the Antarctic versus flying in the Arctic, which you're doing a lot of right now? And we're going to talk about it in more detail in a moment. There's definitely different challenges in the Antarctic in the fact that there's more unexplored areas there's less communities, so you have less weather being reported. And I'd say you are doing more things on your own in the Antarctic versus the Arctic. For me today, I'm doing scheduled flying in the Arctic. So we're going from community airstrip to community airstrip. I'd say, you know, there, there's less risk because you know everything you're going. You, you know, you go in there once a day or, you know, three, four times a week. Antarctic, uh, I went down once for six weeks and I went to 35 different locations 
They're all off-strip locations. You pick the place you're going to land. Of course, there's more risk. Definitely more interesting that you're finding these places, but it's also a little bit more stressful that you need to think more. Whereas going from, say, Calgary to Edmonton, it's pretty regimented on how you're going to take off, how you're going to climb, level off, descent, and then landing. So, yeah, it's, it's different flying. Sean, you were born and raised in Yellowknife, in the Northwest Territories of Canada. You mentioned earlier that there was something that you wanted to have asked your father. So you were born into a flying family. I was. So my parents actually lived in Cambridge Bay. My mom gave birth to me in Edmonton, so I was born in Edmonton. And after I was born, my parents stayed in Edmonton for just under a year and then sort of started the move between Anuvik, Fort Smith, and then eventually Yellowknife. And in the end, I did graduate high school in Yellowknife. But for all my growing up, I mean, right from when I was born, I was inside small airplanes. Uh, picture of me, you know, one year old sitting on my mom's lap, you know, with the controls of an airplane. Was your mother a pilot as well? No, no. But of course, she went with your dad. Followed my dad all over, and right. uh, I mean, my dad was an AME and aircraft maintenance engineer as well as a pilot. I mean, he again loved to fly. Back when he started. You couldn't be a pilot with glasses. He had glasses. So in the end, he was a private pilot, did some prospecting. The the start of the career was being an aircraft maintenance engineer. So eventually, when he was able to fly commercially, he took a hold of that, flew for Gateway Aviation, and then started his own company out of Fort Smith. And uh, that's, you know, really my growing up years was working on the dock. Um, I remember, you know, 12 years old, working for... I think it was $2.52 an hour, you know, cleaning <laughs> the <who's> fueling them, <laughs> right. uh, helping load them and stuff. And really, the, that all just fueled the passion for airplanes. Was there ever a moment, to be honest, that you thought you'd be doing something other than being a pilot? I think when I turned 16, uh, cars and girls got in, into play, <laughs> and I kind of forgot a little bit about airplanes. Uh, my dad wanted me to get a good education, I wanted to go into University of British Columbia for engineering. And it wasn't until after my third year of uh, engineering, I got a job at Syncrude in Fort McMurray. And I was living in one of the high-rise buildings on, on the SNI. And I remember in the evenings, you'd be sitting on, on the patio on the balcony, watching the airplanes take off and land right in front of you. And at the end of that summer, I went back so you, uh, so you had not gotten your pilot's license before you went to university? No. Okay. And, and really, I didn't know if I was going to or not. After that third year, I went back to Vancouver. I cut back a couple of courses and uh, started flying. I mean, when I learned how to fly, I was going to university as well. So I finished my degree off, and, and then I moved back to Yellowknife and started working out of Yellowknife. Do you think that growing up in Yellowknife was an important factor in the flying that you would eventually do, particularly like these Antarctic rescue missions? I definitely think so. I mean, especially coming, you know, my dad being a bush pilot, all the flying in Yellowknife. And when we moved to Yellowknife, which was right after grade 10, I got a job as a dock boy for Latham Island Airways, which eventually became Air Tindy in the end, which, I mean, I worked for here a few years ago. I mean, that exposure to those kind of airplanes, I mean, really just keeps on fueling that that desire to fly. The bush flying, you know, with the smaller airplanes in the remote locations is, is something that, you know, I mean, I really did grow up with. 
not not that I don't enjoy flying the jets because right now it's quite enjoyable for me. But I think for myself, I'm very fortunate to have that varied career where I've got to fly on virtually every continent of the world. I've done a little of everything and flew for, for Buffalo Airways on the DC-3s and the DC-4s and you know got to fly with some very knowledgeable people who mentored me and got me to the point where you know doing what I'm doing now so that combined with some of the management experience that I've been able to get along the way I think it was the perfect fit for me you know today we have people getting their pilot's license and going to work for the airlines that's all they're going to see for their entire career and sometimes I kind of feel sad for some of those people because they are driving the bus it's just, how many days off do I get a month? They think of the airplane as a version of a bus. Yeah. Wow. Because really, I mean, you, you know, you're going Calgary to Edmonton. I mean, you right. know, it can be as easy as that. It, it's different than flying an airplane like the Twin Otter, where you're responsible for everything. You have to check the weather, check your airplane. You are the, the fueler, the cleaner, the flight attendant, and the pilot all rolled into one. You do everything. You were encouraged by your parents to get a university education. You graduated with a degree in engineering. Do you recommend that for new pilots coming up? Are the times in which we live where there's a pilot shortage, has that changed that dynamic a little bit? Or would you still recommend that before you commit yourself fully to flying that you go and get yourself a four-year or five-year degree? That's a very tough question because, of course, I see people who I went to high school with who went right into flying and they have a good career. And then myself, who went and got a degree. Some people say, well, that four years time that you could have gotten a job at the airlines, the seniority and stuff, why would you want a degree? Some airlines, like Air Canada, when they have the option, they will demand a degree. Otherwise, you don't get a, a job with them. You know, really, undergrad degree is teaching you how to learn. Does it make you a better person? I mean, I suppose it depends on what the person is to start with. I hire people and I mean, I'll hire people with or without a degree. In the interview, you're gonna see what you're gonna get generally. Have you found the engineering training to be a, an asset as you've evolved your career over time? It has been an asset to me because I've wound up in management. So I don't think I could have done the job that I have done over the years without that degree. But I'm, I've done you know, a lot more than just a regular line pilot would do. The period from when you graduated from university to when you started with Bork, how did you occupy your time? I did a little bit of instructing out of Vancouver while I was still at school, I then returned back to Yellowknife and got on with uh, Buffalo Airways. Oh, okay. Which, which ooh, is the Ice Pilots the ice Airlines Pilot that yeah. people know it as. Yes. And yeah, I, you know, uh, my dad and the owner Joe McBride actually they grew up together. Okay. So they started <laughs> flying at the same time with little airplanes. You know, so luckily enough, I did get a job there. I was very fortunate that, you know, I flew with some very good people there and learned learned a ton. I mean, really, that's that's sort of the 
background you draw upon as you go forward and when you become a captain and stop flying with other experienced guys you're drawing from all those other people that you flew from so it was a great place to learn and flying some incredible aircraft they were you know and really i mean very privileged to have quite a bit of time on the dc3s dc4 was a really cool airplane to fly and i mean even today i mean i was privileged to get to fly the turbine dc3 which was taking you know an airplane that was designed in the 30s and today people are paying 10 million dollars for this airplane with turbine engines that when they designed this did they think that airplane was going to be flying 80 years from then it's like totally remarkable like what lasts that long (laughs) ever (laughs) that's exactly right i mean it is a remarkable aircraft and that it's had such longevity i guess it's the it's the basler turbo conversion you're referring to right yeah it's an amazing aircraft. You were chief pilot and then VP operations at Kimborg from 97 to 2011. So something like 14 years, I think. What were the reasons that you felt you wanted to move on after being at Bork for so many years? Was that a hard decision given your history, making history with that company? Yeah, it was probably one of the hardest decisions I had to leave Kenborg Air. And I think at the time, I sort of saw my my career, you know, at that pinnacle where I can stay here and probably retire here. I was really running the operation there. Good support from the ownership group, from the president of the company. But at the time I was, is this all I want? Do I want to become a businessman or what do I really want? And And I think I just, I saw that that was the time that if I wanted to try different things was the time for me to move on. You know, it was a great company, so I was not leaving it because of any reasons for the company, but more for just for myself, I guess. I mean, at the end of the day, I guess I felt I had to try it out. You joined Canadian North, your current employer, a little over four years ago in a series of positions of escalating responsibility. Can you tell us a little bit about your work at Canadian North? (laughs) Yeah, just do whatever uh, needs to be done. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, I came here. Again, John, you're making it sound easy, yeah. and I'm sure it's not easy. The aviation industry in Canada is a, a relatively small group. The top management people at Canadian North, uh, Steve and John Hankirk, we used to fly sort of next to them when I used to be at Ken or at Kenbor Care, flying the Beach 99 out of Vancouver. They're flying Jetstream 31s for airbc and i was flying beach 99 so you know you'd talk to them when you weren't flying knew them from back then knew the director of flight ops here when i left bork i took a job as a vp business development international business development i mean i've been all over the world with bork so it was it was a good fit with the idea of building a operation that may or may not be within canada Mm -hmm. Discovery Air had a lot of potential, a lot of money, publicly traded company. It was kind of exciting. The arm, I joined Discovery Air Innovation, so we were out there looking for new ways to operate in aviation. A lot of cool people exposed myself to a lot of new ideas, and it was actually pretty cool. Built a company out of Calgary, so I was president of that, and the opportunity arose to be president of Air Tindy. It's funny because you get to that point and you go, hang on a second, 
what am I doing? And it was like you climb the ladder and all of a sudden you look down going, but what I want to do is actually down there because I love flying. And I really got to the point where I was out of flying. And I, I really wanted to get back into the cockpit and, and have a position where I could do some managing but still do some flying. And a job opportunity opened up at Canadian North and the ability to go and fly a 737 was a different opportunity from what I was doing before. But really coming on to Canadian North, because of my experience, both as chief pilot, VP ops, president, I mean, business development, allowed me to come with a, a lot of experience and assist where I could. I don't want to say as jack of all trades, but when I took the job, at Canadian North, I was doing regulatory affairs, so I was watching the regulations, working with various industry associations, and working with all aspects of the company to ensure that Canadian North was regulatory compliant, doing a little bit of flying, not doing stuff directly inside flight operations, more with all the departments, which I did for a couple of years. I then helped develop operational QA, so I sort of did that for a year. And then I got back into flight operations. So now I am the chief pilot of the Dash 8 operations. So working directly within flight ops, which I think drawing back on that chief pilot role I had at Ken Boric Air and being back in that comfortable area where you're really working with pilots, standard operating procedures and supporting the pilot group in the operation. And I, I kind of feel that I'm back to where I, I belong and really enjoying it a lot more than maybe some of that uh, other management type stuff I've been doing at Canadian North. So it's fair to say that any job that you take in the future is always going to involve some time in the cockpit. <laughs> it seems to have been that way, yes. What's the future hold for you, Sean? I mean, you've done so much. If you project yourself out five or ten years, what would you see yourself doing? I hope I get to keep flying. I think, you know, maybe one day go back into that upper management area but you know it's hard to say like Canadian North is a good company so I could be happy here for for years so I don't have to go anywhere if for some reason you couldn't have been a pilot what would your next choice have been I think I probably would have gone to you know the aeronautical engineering mechanical engineering you know Pratt and Whitney stuff like that I mean I definitely was interested in that and I think that's the direction I would have wanted to go. Do you ever think about doing anything else? I don't know what else I'd do. This has always been a passion. I mean, I think no matter what else I would do, it would somehow have to involve aviation. Is your approach to developing your career one that you would recommend to others? And really the question is, what advice would you offer to an aspiring pilot who wants to model their career after yours? I think the advice I give is find the job that you want and that you like. At the end of the day, it's not about money. I've seen too many people who go to the airlines because their friends go to the airlines, who go there, who don't like it. But once you get that magical seniority number, you can't leave. And then that's your life. You're in a job which is still flying, but is maybe not the right job for you. And I, th I think we just have that peer pressure today that you have to succeed in aviation, you got to work for WestJet or Air Canada. But I'd like to suggest that there's a lot of very good jobs out there. A lot of people are very fulfilled 
people that live in Norman Wells, that live in Yellowknife, people can fly in Yellowknife for $100,000 a year and go home every night to their family. You can't do that at Air Canada. You can't do that at WestJet. But people don't think that is a viable career option. Not a lot of people think that's where I want to be. I want to work for Air Tindy or Summit out of Yellowknife for the rest of my career. They don't. I got to go to Air Canada. I got to go to WestJet. But they get there and it's like, what? I put my white shirt on at the hotel. I don't see my wife for four or five days. I get home. I'm home for two days and then I'm packing again for the next day I got to leave. People don't really realize that. Do, do you ever wonder, Sean, kind of why you got all these opportunities? I guess I got the opportunities because I was the guy who, you know, stepped out of the line pilot role and took on the management responsibilities and was able to keep the operation running, you know, up until then. Because, I mean, I was the chief pilot leading up into that. So... I guess I was very fortunate that my boss, Steve Pennicott, trusted me to go and do it. There was better pilots at the company. He could have said, you're not doing this. You're, you're the manager. Send one of those other guys. He could have Delegate. said Delegate. Yeah. 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 But he didn't. He supported it. So, you know, I was fortunate and I like flying and I wanted to do it. <laughs> Pilot or aviator? I'm probably an aviator because I definitely seem to get involved in more than just the flying. Sean, there's something that I've asked all of my guests and I'd like to ask you as well. And Could we do this again at some point down the road? 2027. <laughs> what's, what's significant about 2027? Another 10 years. Another 10 years. <laughs> Any further thoughts? Anything else that you want to, that you think would be, would be a fit for this? Aviation's... A great career, but you need the passion. If you think of it as a job, then I think people will not be happy. Well, maybe that's the difference between a pilot and an aviator. I mean, a pilot, you use the metaphor of bus. Maybe a pilot just flies the bus, and an aviator embraces the, the occupation the way that you've done. Yeah. Sean, that brings to an end what I think has been a once-in-a-lifetime conversation for me, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show, and uh, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. <laughs> that brings to a conclusion episode 13 of the Work Network Show. I would like to once again thank our very special guest, Sean Lutet, veteran of two midwinter Antarctic rescue flights, passionate aviator, and as I like to say, lover of high latitudes and low temperatures. Thank you, Sean, for taking us on a ride we would be very lucky to experience in our own lives. But barring that, this was the next best thing. As mentioned at the top of the show, we're proud to be a member of the new Alberta Podcast Network. APN is powered by ATB. And let me take a moment to explain a little. ATB is a financial institution sort of like a bank, but better in many ways, here in beautiful Alberta, Canada, where the Work Not Work show is based. ATB has stepped in to directly support the Alberta Podcast Network, which in turn directly supports this show. This means I can keep bringing you the great stories of our guests like Sean Lutet. To find out why ATB is like a bank, but better, 
please check them out at atb.com slash listen. They really deserve a moment of your time. I truly and humbly thank them for their support. If you like what you've heard on this episode of the Work Not Work Show, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Our website is worknotwork.show and our podcast can be found on Apple's iTunes. Thank you, Michelle, my lovely wife, for your continuing support and your infinite patience. Hey, I got a sponsor. Finally, thank you, our faithful audience, for supporting the Work Not Work Show, the show about people who, like Sean, have turned their passion into their profession. 